Please go ahead and keep your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10. And I um, just want to talk about way back in the day when Yahoo was still a search engine. It was actually still more popular than Google. This was when I was uh, actually in college, and I was part of a college fellowship. It was fantastic. And we uh, often had meetings where one of us would go up and bravely share the story of how they became a Christian. And one of my friends uh, who became a Christian in high school, she said some things that have been forever burned into my memory ever since. Uh, Basically, she shared that uh, before she came to know Jesus, she'd have all these moments of, of gratitude Small and great, you know, where, where feel, feelings of, of thankfulness would just well up in her heart, you know, and this would happen often, especially when she was out in nature, seeing some glorious sunset or, or catching a glimpse of some fantastic wildlife. But the only problem was, although she felt this incredible gratitude, she had no real idea why she was feeling thankful, and she had no real person or object to to express this gratitude to, right? This is a little bit like the feeling when you get some awesome gift, but it comes to you anonymously, right? If If that's ever happened to you, you know the first question that you want an answer to is, who gave me this awesome gift? Who has shown me such kindness? I must thank them. Feels wrong not to. That is, unless uh, that gift was a set of steak knives. Uh, In that case, you're just wondering, uh, did they include a gift receipt? Oh, okay, yeah, they did. Okay, now I'm feeling thankful. But in all seriousness, when my friend realized that it was God in Christ Jesus that gave her all those sunsets, as well as all those sunrises, as well as everything good, true, and beautiful in her life, Her gratitude found a home. Her joy was made complete. Now here's how uh, John Woodhouse, who I'm gleaning a lot from today, fair warning, he puts it this way. We experience God's kindness every moment of our lives. Every breath we take and each beat of our heart is a gift from our maker. There are so many expressions of his kindness every day that no one could number them. How slow are we to recognize the magnitude of his goodness toward us? But here's something that's really important to understand about God's kindness. There's a specific reason why God's kindness is shown to us in such magnificent abundance. And the reason is repentance. Repentance. Listen to Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God's extraordinary kindness, forbearance, and patience, they're all echoes of his desire for us to repent and be reconciled with him. And what is repentance? It's, it's, it's simply this. First, we humbly acknowledge the problem, our sin, that is, our evil and unjust ways, and we turn from them by turning toward the Lord. 
And again, this is the true beauty of repentance. It leads to reconciliation. It literally opens the floodgates for even more of God's kindness as he promises to show the repentant perfect mercy, forgiveness of all sin, the hope of one day living in righteousness and glory forever as his very own sons and daughters. It's kindness for kindness. And this is what we caught a glimpse of last week, right, with the story of Mephibosheth, who models for us what it actually looks like to humbly receive the very kindness of God. Here's a man restored and exalted beyond his wildest expectations. Now, sadly, what we're going to see this week is the flip side, the other side, or how not to respond to God's kindness. Chapter 10 shows us how to proudly reject God's kindness or be a people trying to exalt ourselves against God's chosen king. And this story ends with the nations being humbled. This chapter very much reads like a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Now that said, as we move into the story, remember that King David, he's someone who casts this long shadow that, that points to the true substance, which is King Jesus himself, God's forever king. And so our passage actually begins with King David showing kindness yet again to another would-be enemy of his, this time a foreign king of the Ammonites, a people with whom the Israelites have a long, ugly, hostile history with. So look with me at 10, verse 1. Verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now keep in mind that this word translated here as loyally is actually the same Hebrew word that I talked about last week, hesed, that we saw translated as, as kindness in chapter 9. I'll be interchangeably using those, those translations. But this kindness, which here is expressed more as loyal love, it's being shown to this new king named Hanun, whose father, King Nahash, just recently passed away. And here's what you should know about King Nahash. He was a bad dude. He was quite severe and violent. The kind of guy who, according to 1 Samuel chapter 11, if you were his enemy, uh, what he would do is gouge out your right eye as you looked at him with your left. And... He also even tried, albeit unsuccessfully, to invade Israel when Saul was king. He went through the, the city of Jabesh-Gilead, which we heard about earlier in 2 Samuel. Which is why it is, once again, all the, the more of a shock to see King David seeking to show loyally or deal loyally with the house of Nahash and his successor, King Hanun. Now, we're actually not told how Nahash dealt loyally with David. We have no specific details anywhere about this. But here's what we do know. David, as God's king, is trying to show kindness to a neighboring kingdom 
who has a long track record of hostility, wickedness, and idolatry. Once again, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us unless, unless you remember that God's original intent for Israel was to make them a blessing to the nations, right? God's plan all along for his people from Abraham, Abraham on was that they would serve as a blessing and light unto the nations, even the wicked and idolatrous ones, especially those. So David's actions here, they're functioning like a small-scale fulfillment of this. And did you notice what King David's goal in showing, expressing Hesed is here? The goal was comfort. It was to bless this nation by comforting them in the hardest of times, in the face of death, the most stark reminder that we still live in a fallen world, that's when David's kindness comes to the Ammonites. And yet Hanun will reject this comfort from God's king and in the nastiest way possible. Now why would anyone do such an unwise thing? Well, Apparently, what we see is kindness is rejected because bad counsel is accepted. Look with me at verse 3 as Hanun accepts bad counsel, which then leads him to profound wickedness. Verse 3, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. One thing that's helpful to know about this culture is that the, the death of a king would often create a lot of instability. It presented this big challenge for the would-be successor to establish their own power. So this new king, Hanun, he was probably feeling very insecure about his place in the world with both enemies real and imagined around him. And on top of that, he wasn't very experienced, which made him all the more vulnerable to taking bad counsel. It would have been very wise for him to surround himself with good counsel at that point. But these princes of the Ammonites are bad counsel. They're these ruling military commanders, and they try to antagonize Hanun right away against David's servants, who we know have just come as ambassadors of God's comfort. And guess how they do it? They do so by throwing out a conspiracy theory that sadly appeals to Hanun's deepest fears and loves. So Hanun tragically buys into this conspiracy theory, which leads him to commit this humiliating injustice against David's servants, where half their beards are shaven off, and then they're sent home half naked. Now, it's hard to convey how serious this act of uh, disrespect actually was, because in this society, a man's beard was 
essentially a sacred symbol, symbol of his manhood. So saving, uh, shaving someone's beard was basically tantamount to emasculating them, right? And then they double down on this degradation. They make it even more literal, just in case you miss the message, by exposing their nakedness and sending them home. Public shame for everyone to see. Now, let's not forget these uh, messengers. They were official representatives of King David, which meant that any violation or disrespect that they were shown, that meant King David was also being shown the same disrespect. And all-out wars have been started over much smaller acts of disrespect. And just put yourself in the shoes of these men. There's no way that any of them just let this happen to them. No way. Which meant that they were violated. There was no doubt that there was a violent desecration of their bodies here. Now this whole scene is a sobering reminder of how sin always causes people to harm or desecrate the image of God in other people. Because sin's number one goal is always to dishonor God by dishonoring those made in his image, his very representatives. And once again, what causes all of this to take place? It all happens when King Hanun takes bad counsel, when he gives himself over to it. This should stand as a sobering warning to all of us, especially believers, if we reckon for the fact that we have experienced a lot more kindness than Hanun ever has. But the reality is, ever since the garden, we've all been quite susceptible to bad counsel. So let's, you know, take note of how Hanun was blinded by his own fears which fueled his uh, lust for power and control, which once again inclined his heart toward evil. And let's not kid ourselves that somehow we'd never look to bad counsel for comfort or control, or that we'd never be seduced by its uh, promises of power, pleasure, or prosperity. Case in point, uh, theologian Michael Horton says, our churches right now look a lot like Fox and CNN. You can tell when you walk into a Fox church and a CNN church because the ideology, not the gospel, is the priority. And what I believe he's getting at there is how many of us who call ourselves Christians, we've given our hearts loyalty to the bad counsel of secular dogma whether from the, the right or the left, which all have this feature in common. None of them have any ultimate loyalty whatsoever to Jesus Christ and much less his gospel. Yeah, sure, they'll use Jesus if he's you know, going to serve as a means to their end, but bowing to him as Lord is not their end. Do not be fooled. Now, I do want to add to that. I'm not saying that there is no truth or common grace out there in the world. Not at all what I'm saying. What I'm asking us 
to do is discern the heart that's driving the counsel that's coming our way. So don't be afraid to put all the counsel to this test. I call it the hated compared to Jesus test. All right. So if counsel comes your way, ask of it. Does this counsel cause me to hate my own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters? Even yes, and even my own life so that I may live as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that what that counsel is about? If the answer is no, uh, then take whatever good you can from it, spit out the bad, and don't, definitely don't build your life around it. Don't make it the foundation of anything. No matter how Christian or, or just or right the veneer seems to be, no matter how much power prosperity or pleasure it seems to offer you if it doesn't pass the hated compared to Jesus test then it's not worthy of your deepest love and it will likely lead you into idolatry now we did see earlier didn't we that Hanun actually made these tragic decisions on the basis of a conspiracy theory on the basis of zero evidence, but just speculations spewed by men who were probably trying to make a name for themselves through conflict and violence, Hanun is suckered and seduced by a conspiracy theory. Christians, let us beware of bad counsel, especially those that come claiming hidden secret insider knowledge about why this country or this world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know that the early church had to fight off so many heresies that were essentially conspiracy theories? Speculations about hidden secret knowledge? There's nothing new about these conspiracy theories and they always try to prey on our feelings of powerlessness about the future, which I know constantly nips at all of our heels. But be of good courage. Be not afraid, because he is risen. He's truly shown us his kindness and his gospel. Good counsel has been given to us. And he's the one who holds the future, right? Because he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. Here's the inoculation to all conspiracy theories. Remember that Jesus is the future. Now here in King David, we get another glimpse into how King Jesus will ultimately wield his power and authority. And once again, it's so unusual to us. It's, it's just going to not make any sense. Because how does King David respond at this stage to this act of hostility and disrespect against his servants and himself? Well, he responds by doing nothing. David does nothing. That is, aside from showing uh, kindness and taking care of his own humiliated messengers by sending them to Jericho to recover, David responds in a way that shows him being very slow to anger, very reminiscent of the character of God himself. Because once again, do you know how many of us 
would be here if God wasn't slow to anger? Especially when he's profoundly disrespected and disregarded? None of us. Not a single one of us. So David, here he is, showing zero hostility to the Ammonites, only interested in covering his suffering servants. Now what's odd is that David's lack of hostility, not his show, but his lack of hostility seems to unsettle the Ammonites all the more. Kind of like a kid that knows he's been caught red-handed and he's confused because he's waiting for the discipline or the punishment. Now the Ammonites knew full well that what they did was very, very serious. So much so that we're told in verse 6 that the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David. Notice that this was the Ammonites' read on the situation, not necessarily David's. But believing now that they were repulsive to David, their response isn't to seek repentance, is it? It's trying to, it's not trying to seek mercy or, or make it right somehow. In fact, their response is to double down on their hostility, their disrespect, and they initiate. They start an all-out war against King David and Israel. But they also know in the back of their minds that King David, he's not to be messed with, right? So they dare not go to war against him by themselves. So they go out and hire a bunch of mercenaries, tens of thousands of mercenaries from Syria. And it's at this point that we're told, finally, David, David responds. And he seems to respond quickly. Verse 7, and when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. Joab, if you remember, he's, he's David's lead commander. And David sends him out to defend against the Ammonite aggressors. Because once again, there's no hint of hostility on David's part. This is purely, as we'll see, a, it's a deterrence mission. And then we're really not told that much about battle. Just that Joab took some of the best men and fought the Syrians in the front. And his brother Abishai stayed back and fought the Ammonites. And it was a decisive victory for Joab and for Israel. There's no mention of bloodshed even. We're, we're just told that there was a lot of fleeing by the Syrians and the Ammonites. Verse 13. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. What actually stands out most from this scene, this brief battle scene, is Joab's little speech beforehand. And uh, it's actually not that little. It's given quite a lot of space, which means it's significant. We should pay attention to it. So let's read it again in verse 11. Verse 11. And he, Joab, said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, you know, uh, if you've been following along, that Joab is a man of many faults. 
And yet, just as uh, David reflected God when he walked by faith, the same is true of Joab here. I think he really does shine, and, and his little speech is actually quite the stunning summary of, of how to persevere and how to do battle in service of God's king. Notice how first, you know, Joab tells his brother Abishai, hey, you get my back, I'll get yours. Remember, we're in this together. We're going to look out for each other, okay? And then next, he calls on his brother to be of good courage, which more literally just translated is be strong. Be strong. Give it all we've got. The Lord is our strength for the sake of his people. Be strong. And lastly, I think most important, Joab exhorts his men to fight the good fight by faith, by trusting the Lord. Verse 12, where he says, And may the Lord do what seems good to him. You see, Joab had no idea how this was going to go, right? And that wasn't the basis of his uh, hope or, or confidence. His confidence was in what? His hope and his trust was in the righteous character of the Lord, who would do what was good to him. Now, it's crucial as we kind of process this to remember that the New Testament tells us that our battle today is not against flesh and blood. And therefore, this, this isn't about physical fighting with metal swords or ultimately defending national or ethnic boundaries. Makes no sense if we're thinking about a global church. But rather, our battle is ultimately a spiritual one. In service of the risen King Jesus and his people, which is why Ephesians tells us, now we fight with the sword of the Spirit against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. who primarily love to use bad counsel, interestingly enough, to defeat the people of God. Now these forces, they have a way of looking daunting, unrelenting, overwhelming. But the rest of our passage is a reminder that we need to be of good courage, that we need not be afraid, because once the king comes... All this nonsense, nonsense is going to be put down. All darkness and evil will be put to an end. And the king will bring this everlasting peace. Every knee will bow. So, while Joab was uh, victorious in this first siege, the Syrians, they were so humiliated. They were so unhappy about uh, that first loss that they're, they're, they're going to try to regroup. They're going to upgrade their forces, and they're going to make an even bigger attack. In this next battle, we're told, many kings are involved, and they're being led by Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, who was like, basically, you could call him a king of kings in that region. That's what he was. And you can tell things have really escalated because at this point, King David doesn't send Joab out to lead the army. 
This time, David leads the army, the king, and he takes the fight into enemy territory, to Helam. And again, not much is said about the battle. Right? You, you history buffs, you war buffs might be a little disappointed with that, but that is actually just a clue as to how decisively David won this battle over all the other kings. Look at this conclusion in verse 18. And the Syrians fled once again before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Utter defeat for the kings of the world who would spurn the kindness of God's king. And unlike the first battle, this time there wouldn't be any more escalation. It's over now. All the kings who opposed David. Verse 19. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. Remember last week uh, when I quoted the verse that appears multiple times in the New Testament? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's an instance of God opposing the proud. Here's an instance of, of those who exalt themselves being mightily humbled. And once again, this was all so unnecessary and completely avoidable. The Ammonites, the Syrians, they, they brought all this accursed trouble upon themselves. Foolishly rejecting, wickedly rejecting God's kindness. Instead of despising and challenging him, they should have responded with humble repentance. And they had many chances to do so, to turn, to repent, to seek peace with him before it was too late. But they didn't, and peace was made for them, not with them. Now, what does any of this have to do with us? Well, uh, uh, for those of us who functionally like to see ourselves as kings or queens or a typical American who likes to see themselves as sovereign over their own affairs, King Jesus has some sobering, wonderful, good counsel for us. Because here's how Jesus, the true king of kings, describes the state of our current affairs and thus our ongoing need for his kindness, which as it turns out, we've been experiencing every moment of every day of our lives. So Jesus would ask all those listening, Luke chapter 14, verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, 
This is the point. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So whatever it is that you're relying on, your 10,000 strong army of whatever, Bitcoin, your, your hobbies, your addictions, your vices, the reality is they're all going to come up short for you. They're all going to fail us in the end, just like they did for the Ammonites, the Syrians, and Hadadezer, the greatest of these kings. So it is very much the priority today, while we still have time to repent, while we still have time to recognize God's kindness, to renounce all other hopes, and ask for terms of peace now, as you see the King of Kings drawing near. So now would be a good time for me to ask us all, are any of us knowingly presuming upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Going on, muddling on in unrepentant sin, which is unrepentant hostility against God's king himself? Yes, he is slow to anger. You will never be able to dispute his steadfast love but he will not tolerate forever this sort of rejection, this unkindness, this rebellion. All of it that abuses and exploits his image and his creation to prop up whatever, whatever it is that we're trying to build our false kingdoms on, right? Power, prosperity, pleasure. And he's not going to excuse any of us because all we did was follow bad counsel. It wasn't our fault, which is what we'll say in our attempts to justify or rationalize or even build our identities around self-exalting sin. He saw through all those excuses from way back in the garden. He hasn't heard anything new from any of us. but he offers us good counsel still. Here's what the Lord saw good to do for all sinners. He sent his son, his very own son, as a messenger. A king named Jesus, right? With kindness and good news to comfort those in mourning. He knows the reality of sin and death in this world. And through this king, God is now offering us peace with him in the most favorable, loyal, loving terms imaginable. Which means, no matter how much you've opposed or despised God's kindness in the past, if you repent and entrust yourself now to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you will be exalted to a place in his very kingdom where one day you will see the end of all evil, sin, and death. As he raises up his people 
to enjoy eternal life in his new creation where we're going to just reflect his holy righteousness and justice, completely impervious to bad counsel. So let us all repent and believe this good news. Let us be of good courage and fight the good fight of faith, renouncing all that we have so that we may know the kindness of our King, our Lord Jesus. Amen.